Hey everyone, just a disclaimer on this one before we get into the episode. This week we had filmmaker and director Mike Petchy on to talk about Seven, um, and he's very passionate about film, um, as you will listen in a sec. So we went on quite a few tangents and we spoke about his movies and the industry at the moment, so this episode runs a bit long, but we had some technical difficulties with Danielle's microphone, so she cuts out towards the end of the discussion. Most of the discussion for Seven is there, and I would recommend that if you would like to hear us going on a tangent and talking about the film industry and not Seven in particular. Um, stick around till the end. After the, the end music, we'll put that there, but it won't have a lot of Danielle's audio when we were talking about his film and things. Just which, keep that in mind. Which is really unfortunate because Mike did a movie or a short in prep for a movie that's going to be a feature. And we had the privilege to be able to watch that, which not a lot of people do. And I just really wanted to express to him, because I don't like, you know, thrillers or horror, which is kind of the, the genre that this falls into. I would just wanted to express to him how much I actually enjoyed it. And we went on a little bit of a conversation because it is foreign language as well. Um, so unfortunately, we kind of lost some of the conversation about you know, the way that language was used and things like that in the film. I am still glad I got the chance to let him know. Uh, and I'm just sorry that if if we don't have that here, I'm sorry you don't get to hear it, but it was a good conversation and I think you guys know that. I think anyone who is a content creator who has made tried to make videos or audio like this before has run into technical problems in the past and um, we're just surprised that it's taken until episode 20 for us to have these problems to be honest because these things happen all the time and um we'll try not to have it affect us in the in the future actually we did lose the fight club episode completely actually so um we had to re-record that again which was a real pain in the ass because you could never really recreate those uh genuine conversations so it has happened before so we will have those conversations at the end keep in mind that danielle is responding to him and they're having a conversation um, not necessarily with me. Uh, we'll just keep his audio in there because he has quite a lot of interesting things to say and just keep that in mind. It just might not make perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I hope you uh, enjoy this, this episode. Enjoy. Enjoy. Welcome to We Are DB. I am Brenton, joined as always by Danielle. That's me. And this week, we have with us filmmaker, director, and host of the In Love With The Process podcast, it's Mike Petchy. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm pumped. I'm excited to be on the show with you guys. Thanks for joining us. Now, in case you haven't heard, In Love With The Process podcast is uh, a show that goes behind the movies and the people behind the movies. You often interview people in the industry, and we hear about the process of making movies. Isn't that right? Yeah, so I've been a director myself now for about 18 years, and I wanted to create a podcast that really told the truth <laughs> about yeah. about what it's like to work in this business um, and really sort of give solid advice to young filmmakers, young photographers, young folks um, on like what the what the life is. When you choose this life, it's a whole different lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I've actually found it very insightful, and, and um, it's interesting that you say – to give advice to young filmmakers and see what the actual reality of the industry is. And that's definitely what I've picked up. Uh, so you're, if you're interested in filmmaking or anything, I'd definitely give uh, In Love With The Process a listen. 
yeah, come by and hang out. We love we love new listeners, and uh, like I said, it's about really falling in love with all of the little steps, all these little details, um, and that's kind of why I like your show because you guys are really sort of breaking down some of the best of the best movies, and today mm-hmm. and today's movie is one of my all time favorites. So, thanks for joining us as we count up the IMDb's best movies of all time and discuss some of the greatest films you mightn't ever have seen. This week, rated as number 20 on the Internet Movie Database by millions of film lovers from around the world is Seven. Released in 1995, starring Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt as the two leads, Seven is a crime film set in some rainy American city. I'm not really sure what uh, city this is meant to be set in. Based on an original screenplay by Andrew Kevin Walker, Seven is directed by David Fincher. Now, this was filmed in Los Angeles, but it's not meant to be set in was Los it? Angeles. Yeah. You, it kind of looks more like uh, New York or something, doesn't it? I was sitting here and thinking about it, and I'm like, I really feel, based on my experience, that it's got to be somewhere like Detroit or Chicago, but that's just me. I get that vibe. From what I understand, uh, Andrew Kevin Walker, who was writing this, wrote this while he was staying as a struggling screenplay writer in New York City. And I think this, Mm. I think he probably lived in some pretty crappy places in New York City. And so (laughs) I think that was the big stimulus for this film. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I heard is that he really doesn't didn't like his experience in New York City, so he wanted to paint it in a bad light. But I'm not sure if it's um officially meant to be set there. I think it's just meant to be the typical uh, grungy sort of American city that you sort of see in these these noir films. Um, mm-hmm. We mentioned in the episode on Fight Club how because they do have very similar sort of taste as a as a David Fincher film, where it's just this gritty, dark feeling. You know, you just you need to have a shower after I believe I said in that that episode we even if I, I really like these movies it does have a particular feel behind it and I really do like that well have you guys seen these movies before this is this a film that you guys had seen before or is this the first time viewing it for you both this is the second time we saw it yeah we had watched it about a year ago for the, for the first time Danielle I've seen it about a half a dozen times yeah yeah, it is like beginning of Fincher being Fincher. I mean, the the one movie he mm-hmm. did before this was Alien Three, and that was a yeah. nightmare experience for him. If you guys have read all the details on that, um, and this was, I, I thought a lot of folks thought he was not going to be in the business after that because it was so terrible. And then yeah, this script came along and and he jumped right in it. And really, this is the beginning of Fincher. This is like, if you guys watch like Mindhunter, if you guys watch like the House of Cards TV show, yeah. all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of, he's basically learning about all that stuff while he makes this film. Like I, I absolutely, absolutely think this is his best. <laughs> and it's, it's a controversial thing to say, but I think this, this one here, as far as like cinematography is concerned, as far as tone is. Yeah, far- definitely. I had um, made note that even though it is only his second feature film, he definitely does have his particular, his feel. Um, like, you see that from his movies in the 90s, Alien 3, Fight Club, Panic Room, um, where he's just got this particular feel. And I think that's it's interesting that even in his second movie, he's really making a name for himself, and that's impressive. Yeah. Through watching these, like, doing the podcast and watching these movies, I I wasn't one to really 
you know, peg directors for a long time. I just, I was wanting to really just focus on the plot and that was kind of it. But through doing this show, I've really learned to pick up on some of those cues and all I've ever seen of David Fincher's are Fight Club, Seven, and you said The Social Network too. Hey, Brenton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But of those first two, he's got a very particular flavor and it's interesting to me because Brenton knows this very well. I don't do horror and I don't do gore. <laughs> so the fact that I really enjoyed this movie is really interesting to me and I think kind of a testament to what he was able to do because I really like this movie and it really stuck with me. I don't know if I would consider it a horror movie. I would say it's a thriller or a psychological thriller, I guess. Yeah, I'm but you sure. know, I just I just don't do suspense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is this is yeah. this is a suspenseful one, man. This is definitely one. Yeah. So what was your experience with Alien 3? Sorry if I missed that. Uh, when I saw that film initially, obviously I'm a huge fan of Ridley Scott's Alien, and obviously I'm a huge fan of, of, of uh, James Cameron. James Cameron, yeah. Um, and then Alien 3 came out, and I, I'm the minority here. I really fucking love that movie, and I'm sorry if I drop F-bobs. I don't know if you guys are. Oh, go ahead. You're good. Uh, no, good, good, good. <laughs> um, I really fucking love that movie, and um, I love the grit, and I love... Uh, his his style in that film and when you guys were talking earlier about his style his tone um as a filmmaker you spend or at least i did i spent years sort of examining how all david fincher movies feel like david fincher movies and it's Mm -hmm. uh the, the craft that he employs the skills that he uses his camera angles that he does uh he's he's the king of inserts like his inserts in his films for some reason his inserts are just completely different than any other insert ever done. And if you guys don't know what an insert is, it's essentially when you do like a cutaway for a scene. So if someone is like, uh, like that bit in uh, seven, when uh, Somerset's in the kitchen and he's looking for the scraped out plastic and he does that insert of just that little container that the plastic is in the little evidence bottle and slides it across the counter. Yeah. Um, it is, that is so specific to David Fincher and there are so many other directors out there, like major Hollywood film directors, that can't figure out how his inserts are so much more meaningful. Because when you're shooting on a set, inserts are usually the things that you tag on at the end of the day. Because you have so much coverage mm. to do. You have to get the actors banged out. You have to get over-the-shoulder coverage on both. You got to get your wide establishing. And when you're scheduling the day, the inserts always get stacked at the end. And a lot of times, the inserts yeah. aren't, aren't even done by the main unit crew. They're also they're done by second unit. Um, and so most inserts in films become sort of this thing you have to do. Like, I have to get a shot of the coffee cup, or I have to get a shot of this egg going on the, on the frying pan. Um, but everything that he does with inserts means something narratively and means something emotionally. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and I, I just bring that up because... When you talk about his tone, it's all this really like amazingly artfully done craft work that is so subconscious that it takes years of examining his 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 films to try to figure it out from another director to to understand, you know. That's so insightful, you know, because I mean, of course, things like that subliminally have such an effect, but again, because it's subliminal, you wouldn't it's hard to pick up on, right? Like that's no, the purpose, that's, yeah. That's yeah. the goal. It's just a little thing to make you feel a little bit more immersed in the in the film, yeah. I guess. Um, now that you've mentioned that, I can definitely think of a lot of examples from Fight Club where he's, yeah. he's done those things. Yeah, for sure, dude. I, like any of his pieces, and if you 
Another thing that's really cool, and as we go off on this tangent, you guys can shut me up anytime. <laughs> but <Fine. laughs> uh, another thing that's really cool is that when he builds sets, he builds ceilings on his sets. And that was one of the things that I really uh, liked about Alien 3 is that when you mm. see these different spaces, like when they're in the big cafeteria area or the, if they're in the medical bay in that movie, uh, he does a lot of really amazing wide angle, low angle stuff. Like he's very specific about where he positions his cameras for coverage and you can always see the ceilings behind. And if you go and look at a lot of other movies that have sets, when they're trying to save money and they're trying to cut costs, the first thing that goes is ceilings. You basically build like three walls, four walls or whatever you need and then you have the scene happen in that set. Um, Was a movie like Alien 3, because I can see that it would be something that's low budget, but I can also see it that it can be something big budget because it's the third one in the series. Was um, that something that was high or low? Um, I I think it was a decent sized budget. I mean, he was in a weird position because before that, Fincher was uh, one of the best and most lucrative music video directors from the 90s. You know, yes. I think it was hmm. I think it was uh, Propaganda Films was his company. He had like he worked with uh, Spike Jones. He worked with uh, Mark Romanek, all of the, 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 the amazing music video directors. And those guys in the 90s were really developing uh, a new visual style. Like there was a period of time where people were like everything's cut like MTV. Well, it's because these guys were yeah. really, really playing with the format, really playing with like early versions of like color correction and color grading, um, like testing out different film stocks, testing out different lenses and different coverage. Um, and so with Seven, Seven came out and it had the best, the best, best of all that music video stuff, all the way down to like the opening title sequence, which is the first of its kind and the most oh, famous opening title sequence. Yeah, the most famous. And after this movie in the 90s, how many goddamn murder mystery, I, like even stuff that Morgan Freeman was in that would just try to replicate this opening title yeah. sequence and never even come close to it, you know? Mm. So my point was, and it was a long, I got off on a tangent, but my point was that uh, when he got hired, he was just a music video director that got hired in and he, I'm sure he was handed a, a pretty hefty budget, but there was all sorts of horror stories about manipulation from the studio and taking control away from him because he was such a young director without clout. He couldn't really fight back on those things. Um, and it, mm. it almost killed him uh, actually making Alien 3. And he, There's plenty of interviews online. And I think it also shaped, because he's got such a very sharp tongue and like a very cynical outlook on things. And I think that movie really shaped how he does his career. Like one of my good friends... Is yep. his first assistant director actually a mine hunter, and he he tells me how amazing Fincher is, how hard he is to work with, and what a perfectionist he is. But also, his tone is hysterically cynical. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. this is definitely not the movie that I thought it was when I first would watch it. Like I uh, I thought it would be just another crappy horror movie from the nineties. Actually, it's very similar to my perception of Fight Club before I watched it. I thought that was just a crappy boxing movie. And then I watched it and I'm like, this is not at all what I was expecting. what do you think it was before you had seen it, Danielle? Well, this was one of our rainy day afternoon movies, the first time I saw it. And I really liked it and I didn't know what to expect. And the thing that I think got me was that it was so psychologically intriguing because I I study psychology, right? So of course that's gonna get me a little bit. But yeah, there were elements to it. I, I love puzzles, right? So it was really interesting mm. for me. 
I think you're really going to like yeah. Zodiac. We should ha- we should get around to watching that because I think there is a lot of yeah. crossover between that and this. Um, mm-hmm. They're trying to figure out the serial mm-hmm. killer and and him basically toying with them, and that's what I find very intriguing. Um, even though it it is a sort of a gross, dark film, I really love watching it just to watch them work, and it's such a great cast. Like the way that they interact and the chemistry they have, um, and them figuring out each one of these steps. Um, I just find it really in- intriguing. Totally. I completely agree. And I think I would say that this movie personally is in my top 10, if not my top five, period. How many times would you say Mm -hmm. you've seen it? Oh, geez, man. I didn't get to see it in the theater when it first came out. I've probably seen this movie over 100 times, at least. Wow. Wow. (laughs) It's just, it's one of those films that when I started as a director, um, I was studying and studying and studying and studying because the visual cinematic language that he uses in this film is, is almost perfect like it's so wonderfully done Mm -hmm. and it's so emotionally driven and the thing that i love about it is that obviously there's amazingly shocking intense sequences in this film that people are going to remember after they watch it Mm -hmm. but i really really love the in-between scenes and and sort of like the expositional transitional scenes that are generally boring um and he does such a great job he does such a killer job building character with these folks um, it's a very stereotypical film. It's, a, it's an old film noir. It's like an old detective story. It basically follows the rhythms that have been set 50 years before that, as far as, as detective movies go. Um, yeah. He does such an amazing, amazing job building character with action. So like Morgan Freeman's mm-hmm. character, Somerset, he has trouble sleeping. And so just using the metronome, which happens in the beginning of the film, to drown out the sounds of the city... And to see his struggle with finding his sanity within this filthy, horrible place that he lives is amazing. And it's, it's simply done with a prop and sound effects mm-hmm. and a music cue. Um, and then mm-hmm. if, my other favorite sequence is when Mills and Somerset, played by, like I said, um, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt, they're in the middle of doing this investigation to try to find whose fingerprints these are. And they have to sort of find some sleep, find a chance to sleep in the police precinct, and they share a couch together. And these two mm-hmm. characters are slowly becoming close because in the beginning they're at each other's throats and they're not really aligned with each other. Um, and there are just these beautiful little in-between moments that happen in this movie that that I remember more than some of the, I don't want to say gory, but some of the more shocking sequences that happen in this film. It's interesting to, like you say, those scenes can typically be boring in other movies. And now that I sit back and think about it, you're right, because they really weren't in this. Because this movie, I remember saying to Brenton, I said, I remember so much about this movie, Mm. which is weird because I had only seen it once and it just really stuck with me. And I don't know what it was that he did, but just so much of it sticks in your mind. I feel like I I just, I really want to communicate how much I agree with what you're saying, but I don't know how to say no, it kind of thing. It's good. You know what it's, I mean? I say this all the time to people that I, that I show my movies and stuff to. What I look for when I mm-hmm. screen a movie for anybody who doesn't work in the business, and those are the people that I make movies for. Mm-hmm. I don't really make movies for people that work in the mm-hmm. business. It's like, it's like cooking a meal for another chef. That's boring. Um, so so like when I show movies to folks that don't work in this business, I'm looking for emotional response because what you're feeling Mm -hmm. has been like impeccably, hopefully impeccably crafted with music, with performance, Mm -hmm. with blocking, like it all comes down to 
subtle details like who is standing taller in a scene and where do the actors move and who controls the dialogue of the sequence and all this different really detailed stuff that I think is missing from a lot of the new stuff that we see now because it's put out so quickly. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah, that, that level of detail isn't in there. I mean, I love a lot of the Marvel movies because I'm a comic book nerd and I used to I grew up doing that, but think about the in-between sequences in like the Captain America movies and stuff. They're just boring. You know? Like, yeah. And yeah. this this movie has such a an amazing amount of texture in it. And not just with acting and not just with dialogue and not just with cinematography, but even just with the production design itself. I mean, there's a sequence here. Obviously, these are two detectives that are chasing a murderer without getting too deep into spoiler territory. But they end up like getting to a place where they have to go through this murderer's stuff. And they have all these amazing notebooks Mm -hmm. in this in this uh, room. Mm. like this room full of notebooks. And normally when you're doing a movie, you have a couple of hero props. You'll have like a handful of hero props that yeah. you know that your actors can play with, and you go to the actor and go, "If you open up yeah. this, if you open up this notebook, like I've drawn some crazy shit in here, and it'll, it'll affect you." These guys, like Fincher, had his production design team literally fill a room full of notebooks with actual written and crafted material, and it took them over two months to design really? this room. So when the actors went in that room, any book they pulled off the shelf was loaded with crazy serial killer shit. So I, I've read that before, and I thought that it was just like two or three books. All the rest of them were padded, and these are the two or three, like you said, hero props, the ones that you see on the camera and they've, they in, actors actually interact with. No, no, no. But you're saying it's the whole room. Yeah, for sure, dude. And then when you, when you watch the opening title sequence of this film, it makes sense that they showed the serial killer sort of creating these books because they had all this great textual material. And it wasn't mm. mm-hmm. it wasn't Fincher that shot that opening title sequence. I forget the name of the company. I'm not going to remember it. But he hired these guys to do it, which became this company that did amazing opening title sequence stuff. And I'm sure he just handed them a bunch of these books that were already production designed, and they built the sequence. And said, "Go nuts!" Yeah, yeah. This movie cool. on its on its surface value is a movie about two cops chasing a serial killer, and that's that's at its surface value what it is. But when you look when you start to really pay attention and peel back all the texture. It's a, an amazingly dark, crafted descent into hell, essentially. And the only yeah. other movie I would compare it to is Blade Runner. Because I think okay, that, yeah. that they both have the same level of detail. They're just different, vi- like one's in the future, and this one is in this really sort of muddy, gross landscape. But they both have that thing for me, you know? It's interesting that yeah. you... um. You did mention that it's it's a pretty basic story that's been done before. Two detectives, one of them's really old, he's sort of getting over it, he's lonely. The other one's young, he's new, he's hot-headed, and they're just chasing the serial killer. But it's what he does with it and the character development with those little things. And I think the interesting word you used was crafted and texture. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's definitely the way I would sort of describe this. Well, and then... Okay, so let me ask this question to you guys. Like, how old are you guys right now? Like, what age range are you guys at? I'm 26. Okay. And I'm 23. When you guys first saw this film and you were like, okay, so this is probably like one of those crime films from the 90s or whatever, right? That was like your first impulse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking it was like uh, you were comparing it to other Morgan Freeman films. I'm thinking you're talking of like 
Uh, along came a spider and kissed the girls. Um, he was in a few things in the 90s that had this sort of crime feeling as well. And that those were what I was expecting it to be. And I don't like them as much. They're fine. <laughs> but, dude, the reason is this movie started it. So that's what's so fascinating about yeah. being a younger generation and going back. For me, I'm a bit older. I'm, I'm like 40, 41 next month. And so for me, when I look at the movies that I loved, which were like early Spielberg movies, early John Carpenter movies, all that kind of stuff, they were actually ripping on like old directors like Howard Hawks and Kurosawa and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So it's, it's always fascinating to hear how a generation after processes this, because when this movie first came out, you guys got to understand something. This was a dangerous film because it was incredibly gritty. No one else really had the balls to talk about you know, with I don't want to get into spoiler territory, but to talk about some of the stuff that happens in this movie, like some of the propage that they, is used in this movie, some of the sexual the tones that are in this film. And when you watch this movie, he created in such a, a beautiful way that you physically think that they're chasing the devil for, for a majority of yeah. this film. I was actually surprised that the room that they went into, like the apartment, and he just busted down the door. I wasn't expecting that to actually be the serial killer. I actually thought it was going to be um, just another one of his tricks to throw him off, you know what I mean? Because I, I was thinking that this person couldn't actually be a person having a, a room to do all this in. I was just thinking, like, he's always <laughs> one step ahead of them. That So I was surprised that it, that there was actual evidence in there. Um, I just thought it would be another trick that they were going into. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating because they broke the rules of investigating in the film without giving too much away, yeah. like to get to that spot. So they ended up for a fraction of a second, one step closer than than he thought they were going to be. Um, and, and like I said, these are all tropes that we've seen since. Like anything that you see on Netflix that's a crime, like that show Dark, like um, like anything that Fincher has done on this on Netflix, like any of these crime yeah. shows, like Ozark, all that stuff. They all love seven. <laughs> like it all comes, it all comes from the source. You know what I mean? I find it actually really interesting that you say like Fincher would be like inspired by John Carpenter and he'd be inspired by Akira Kurosawa. I'm just trying to think like there's always these layers. Like obviously people like Tarantino were inspired by previous filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Who do you think is sort of working today at that prime, at that sort of level as Fincher inspired by his works? Oh, I think uh, I think Denis Denis Villeneuve, the guy who yep. did uh, the new Blade Runner and all that stuff. I think he is a master, and he's very similar to the Fincher style. An- another director that is the same. I'm going to forget his name, but he did Blue Ruin. He did the first two episodes of the latest um, American Detective, and he did mm. the Green Room. Um, I forget his name. He's phenomenal, and he's. Obviously influenced by Fincher. He's obviously influenced by this time period. Um, there's a lot of them. There's a lot, lot There's a lot of them out there. And the thing that's fascinating about Fincher for me, because I started my career as a music video director. So I started doing stuff, a few, like I'd say 10 years after he was doing it, um, right before the music business started to die. So we were at the tail end, so our, mm. bu- our budgets were much smaller. He would have been right at the peak too when he was doing it. Oh my God, dude! I, uh, him and like Mark Romanek, like Mark Romanek did the uh, Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson scream video, and I think that was like a million, two million dollars for that video. Wow! 
and then you start talking about like any of the old Guns N' Roses music videos for like November Rain, Don't Cry, like all that kind of stuff. Uh, Estranged, I think, was a million, two million dollars. Um, so that was the peak. You're talking like 98, 99. And then, you know, the plummet happened after that. And then obviously yeah. with, uh, you know, Napster and, and you know, MP3s and and people not buying CDs anymore, then, you know, it all plummeted from there. But um, you had such a really amazing generation of, of directors that came out of that period. Like I said, Spike Jones uh, came out of that period. Um, Pellington, like there's a bunch of amazing directors that came out of this really fascinating music video landscape. Um, and I think Fincher's the king. Yeah, he's probably one of the most successful ones to come out of it. Yeah, Hell yeah, dude. Like he is at the top. Francis Lawrence is another director. Francis Lawrence did, uh, you guys are known for the Hunger Games, but he also did uh, uh, Constantine with Keanu Reeves. Right. Um, they all have sort of the similar, I don't want to say vibe, but they 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 have that sort of music video anamorphic wide angle lens kind of thing. Yeah, definitely with Constantine. <laughs> yeah, for sure, dude, for sure. I, th- I think it is going to be difficult to discuss any more um, about the film until we get into spoilers. So this is your spoiler warning. I think it was a great establishing shot because it really got me intrigued. I'm like, okay, now you've got me. Um, yeah, it's very true. But let me ask you this. Let me ask you this question. How much of it do you actually see, though? There's something that's really fascinating about how he covers this sequence because he goes into this he goes into this home, right? And uh, his director of photography, Darius Kanji, amazing director of photography. This guy uh, has done like um, Amelie. He's done uh, Delicatessen. Mm. Uh, he did. Uh, he started before this movie. He was literally a guy that shot perfume commercials, and Fincher really liked his style for that. Um, this was the origin of what they call like low key. So low light key. And what that means, uh, without getting too nerdy, most of the time, what they would have to do when in the old days of film, you would have to bring in strong, powerful lights in order to get an exposure to see your actor's face. This was around the period Mm -hmm. of time where with film stocks, they were getting some really great sensitive film stocks um, and really amazing lenses that could uh, shoot uh, with very low light scenarios, and they created these fluorescent tube fixtures called Kinoflows, which was like a big thing for the 90s. And Kinoflows would run cooler and they would give off like this really sort of green, soft light that would fall off. So it would get darker quicker the faster you walked away from the light. Um, and so these guys designed these sets to be very dark, extremely dark. And they would backlight mm. through windows. They throw a lot of haze, a lot of smoke in the room so that it picks up the light differently. Um, and then they just gave the actors flashlights. It's genius. And you see it all the time now. You see it all the time in these movies. But this movie was really the first one to do a lot of this. And so when he walks into that gluttony sequence, you just really are just seeing this giant husk of a man bent over a table. You're really not seeing much. And it isn't until the characters or the actors themselves under the direction of Fincher reveal certain details with the flashlights. That's an interesting point because when you're going into that sequence, the camera is basically just showing you what the actors are seeing as they're seeing it, Mm -hmm. right? So each one of the elements like the hands bound and the things on the floor and the food, 
And that definitely comes across because flashlights would be highlighting exactly what you're looking at at a particular time. Mm-hmm. So the camera is definitely only really focusing on the actor. So it's more immersive in putting you in the shoes of the actors for seeing this set for the first time, you know, and your first reaction and then building it from there, like what happened and breaking it down. Uh, it's it's very much so from their perspective. Mm-hmm. For sure. And it's interesting, too, because, again, you're creating focus on certain details. Because, like I said, I I remember just thinking, did they pan up? No, they didn't. Like you said, they were showing those specific things. And that that's why those particular images stuck in my head is because there was intentional focus given to those important details, which is why it kind of it kind of lent the scene that seriousness and that. Again, I'm using too many of the same words, but that focus on those important details. It comes back to what we were saying initially, too, when you're talking about his his power of inserts. I think one of the shots that sticks out, one of the shots slash sound design that stick out from that sequence for me is when I think it was the coroner's behind the victim's head and he runs Mm. his pen over his neck. And you just hear the sound mm. of that short hair just pip, 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 over his pen. And Fincher does one of his classic inserts. And that that bit there sticks with me more than mm. the wide shot, more than when he picks his face out of the plate and they put his flashlight in there. And it's like, oh, my God, there's a horrific face. It's these little small attention to detail moments that I think give you that feeling that you're having, which is... Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, because it's it's creating for you like you're actually there. It's creating sensual mm-hmm. stimulation, right? You're hearing those sounds so you can imagine how it would feel beyond just seeing it. You know what I mean? These using cues for for hearing and for smell and for touch. You know, there's he's creating really a fully rounded experience for the viewer by doing all of those little things. It's like a, it's like one would you call it a symphony of terror? Yes. <laughs> basically and that, like a great director and that's what everybody strives. I try to do it. I'm, you know, I think I'm a good director. I don't know if I'm a great director, but you're essentially trying to create the symphony of emotion and you're, mm. you're either basing it on something that you've experienced you're basing it on like I'm constantly taking note of why I feel certain ways when I do. You know what I mean? Like if you, if a thunderstorm rolls in at three o'clock in the morning and you get up to take a piss and you're scared going down the hallway, why is it? You know, like is it the mm. sound? Is it the, is it the way that the light flashes through the windows? Is it like what is it specifically that does that? And then. When you examine, when I say I've seen this movie over a hundred times, it's not an exaggeration. I'm literally going through and examining why I have an emotional reaction to each one of these sequences. I mean, I, I literally have the movie playing on right now mm-hmm. without audio in the background that I'm looking at it. And there, that chase sequence down the hall where he's running after John Doe is happening right now. And the choices that mm-hmm. Fincher makes to go handheld with his camera... Mm. When, when it gets so frenetic and the camera starts moving all over the place, it's subconsciously raising my anxiety levels. It's unconsciously raising my heart rate. 
Um, and so when you're watching this bit, it gets so sloppy. The, the actual photography feels so sloppy. It feels so intense um, and visceral, I think is a good word for it. Yes. And, and then he cuts to his, another shot, kicks the door open, and it's on sticks. It's on a tripod and it's on his face. It's like, why is it on sticks there? What is the reasoning for that? Everything is intentionally done. And I think that's the difference between this movie and then that other Morgan Freeman, what is it, Kiss Kiss or Kiss the Girls or whatever it was? Yeah. I think that director probably saw this movie and was like, I'm going to try to just make another. And, you know, the studios saw this movie and they're like, hey, let's just do it like seven. And when you go pitch a film, because I pitch a lot of films, when you go pitch a film to a studio, you bring in what they call comps which is essentially like a document that shows other movies that are just like the movie that you want to make. And then you're like, I'm going to, but mine's going to be different, but it's going to be this. And I think less ballsy directors or less uh, visionary directors will just say, I'm just going to make seven. So let's just put the seven look on this thing. And I think that a lot of those other movies that you thought that this movie was potentially going to be, were just doing that. Does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. It's very interesting that you say that you bring in examples and things uh, and try and say how you're going to manipulate it because I have an architecture background and Mm -hmm. when you're pitching designs um, and you have like a presentation, obviously you can't show everything as to what the feel and the aesthetic and the ambiance of your design is. So you need to bring in other examples and be like, it's going to be like this, but different in this way. (laughs) Um, And it sounds very similar to the process that you were just describing. Oh, I fucking hate it. I, like it's it's the <laughs> You're telling me <laughs> it's the it's the worst, dude. Because when you have to create these documents, you have to go through and find reference images, and that is yeah. so torturous because you're you're grabbing an image. Like I might grab an image of Brad Pitt flipping out of this window right now, hanging on to the um, the fire escape while rain comes down, and I may grab that image specifically for the angle and for the rain in that shot, and then the client will look at that or the studio will look at that and go, Ooh, we love that coat. Put that coat in it. It's like, no, 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 no. I don't want that coat. I don't want that coat in here. And so it's the most difficult thing to do, picking images as references and then directing them to look at exactly why you've picked that photo. Because ultimately Mm -hmm. I can't do a Google search for, Hey, find the movie that Mike hasn't shot yet. And let's get some images for that. Like there's there's no way. It's like the worst. It's the worst thing to be in when you're designing movies and pitching films. <laughs> I wanted to talk about John Doe's plan. There's not really a good good segue. It's, his, his character is so fascinating to me because it's he's got such patience and his everything is meticulously planned. And like I said previously, he was really toying with the detectives for a long time and making them play these games. And that really fascinated me about the character. Um, and I just think it's particularly the... Uh, is it Sloth, the one he's lying in bed for yeah. yes. over a year? He's taken a photo for these things. I just think he's a really interesting, deep character. For sure. Makes me really wonder about Andrew Kevin Walker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like how much like how much torturous fantasy stuff does that guy have in his head? You know what I mean? Yeah. I was thinking when I was watching this uh, the last couple of times, I think when we watched it last year, how... How did John Doe possibly know that he he was going to become Envy and Brad Pitt character was going to become Wrath? Because Brad Pitt had only just come onto the Force, um, and he didn't know anything about 
his life or anything. What, what What's he envious of? I reckon that John Doe has always been envious of people who are, you know, quote unquote normal, which is an interesting take for those people with an antisocial personality disorder. Generally, they don't care. You know what I mean? Like they wouldn't care enough. They think they're above everybody else. And that's why they justify doing what they do. Um, so it's it's a shift for him to be envious. But I reckon he's always been envious of, you know, like I said, normal people. So I think the plan came from wanting to kill himself, but do it with flair. So I think mm. he always was going to be envy. Um, and I think he knew that, you know, he'd line up all the first ones and whoever, whoever happened to get in his path would become wrath. You know what I mean? Whoever, mm-hmm. whoever was investigating him, he just, you know, that was always going to be uh, he was going to wing that part of it, and it would work out whichever way because he knows what human nature is like. He knew that it wouldn't really matter who it was. He just got kind of lucky in getting Mills because he was already hot-headed. Well, I feel like if it was just Somerset that was um, following him, he probably wouldn't get the same effect because he's not hot-headed. He doesn't have the envious life. I don't know. Just like I'm not sure how he would have made this plan happen maybe he would have manipulated someone else um yeah. into, into likely doing sure sure likely it's an interesting thing i think that i agree with your statements and i, th- I think that he, he just had to improvise i think they hit that yeah. point yeah. where where as soon as uh, mills and somerset go and they get that illegal sort of search through the library like the fbi on on the library books and stuff and they show up at his doorway and he walks around that corner, like Doe walks around that corner and sees them. That moment that he sort of walks down that hallway and then he improvises, takes the gun out and shoots at them and runs. I think at that point, his improv- he's improvising the whole way. Like mm-hmm. coming yeah. back and taking photos of them on the staircase, trying to figure out who these guys are. I think it all just becomes uh, uh, improvisation at that point. And I think a lot of it is because he's angry that they're fucking with his plan too early, that they're not following the rules. Um, and mm-hmm. I think it's just sort of stumbling into, oh, and then, you know, Brad Pitt's character is so hot-headed and he's got, you know, uh, what's her name who's in this movie? Um, Gwyneth Paltrow. Paltrow. Thank you, Gwyneth Paltrow. By the way, <laughs> by the way, I think this is my favorite, favorite Gwyneth Paltrow movie. Really? Yeah. I don't think she gets enough opportunities to have such depth. And it's so funny you say that because her character has zero depth. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. She's, exactly. But it's the little interactions yeah. um, with them at the at the dinner table and things. You just really feel, I don't know, there is something there. I can see that. She like And at the diner. Oh, the yeah. diner sequence. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. There's something that I love. Okay. There's something I absolutely love about watching characters struggle not to lose it like struggle not to cry and most of the time with yeah. with male characters that's yeah. like you want to get everybody in the audience to well up have a strong male character like desperately trying to keep tears down desperately trying to do yeah it. and she has a breakdown sequence in this in this uh cafe that is just amazing and the way her because she's so gorgeous at this time period she still is, but she's so absolutely beautiful in this movie. And she does like this really amazing transformation as she breaks down and her face just wrinkles weird. It's this really fascinating thing that happens. And you look at her and she's so 
gorgeous. And I don't mean just on like an outside surface, like, hey, she's a really pretty actress. I mean, emotionally gorgeous. Like everything Mm -hmm. she does, just placing food down on the table, like walking into sequences, how she rolls over bed, how she picks crusties out of his eyes in the beginning of the movie. All these little details Fincher is intentionally putting in there to fucking make the end of this movie intensely brutal. So gut-wrenching, yeah. And that's why it was like so shocking for me. Yep. You know, because I didn't know how it was going to go. And there is something so, like, so, so much more disturbing about a decapitation mm-hmm. yes. than the rest of everything else that happened because it's so unnatural. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So, like, that, like, it's, you can't get further than that, I feel. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a lot worse than, like, say, the pride victim who had to cut her face, right? This, or, or getting stabbed yeah. or something. This is removing her head, a character that we've seen, you know, and we've sort of made that connection with. What did you guys think when you first watched this about the, the big ending? I was horrified. <laughs> I was. I was just like, and the the powerful thing too is that you never see her and I'm glad of it, <laughs> you know, but like it was just all of my senses and like it was so triggering. I'm glad you, they didn't show the head. <laughs> Me Not too. Not only because it's like no one wants to see a decapitated head, but I think it leads to so much more if you're, if he's describing it. Basically, you learn that it's a decapitated head from Kevin Spacey's John Doe. Yeah. He's basically revealing it to Mills, and I think that's so much more of a better reveal than just showing the audience. And if you go back and watch it a second time, watch how Gwyneth Paltrow is in all of her shots. Watch how often she has a bare neck and how long her neck is and all of the shots that exist prior to it. And then those, once you know what the end of that movie is, all those shots become so graphic (laughs) because you know where they're headed. And so you, I I can't help but watch it on a second viewing going, oh my God, what's it like when something goes through that neck? Like you, you can't help but feel that. That's what yeah, I mean. Yeah, you're about. sitting here saying neck over and over, and I'm just like, <laughs> you know, I'm just That's, like, Ugh. we're talking high quality craftsmanship here, guys. Mm. Like this is high quality filmmaking. This is really solid attention to detail. This is like, this is this is work. Like when you yeah. when you come when you come up with these ideas and you start laying in this texture and you start like if someone hands me a script and I have to break down a script. At first, you're looking at the broad strokes and you're just like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. And maybe, and then you start adding levels of texture where it's like, here's what the outfit will be. And the amount of detail, the amount of texturing, and the amount of love that goes into this. I mean, Fincher's a madman. Like, he literally is like, <laughs> uh, like a complete detail oriented fucking psychopath with this shit. And when you watch this movie, you get that. I think that as we continue, and I keep bringing this up, I think that a younger generation will just watch the trailer because the trailers for these aren't any good because they can't give away yeah. they can't give away the spoiler, you know uh, they can't give away and honestly to their benefit it's because we haven't talked about who the bad guy is here, but the bad guy is Kevin Spacey and in a modern environment right now, how relevant is that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know what I mean. So like, I, I just think that. One thing to think about when you watch, I, I put this movie up there with old Kurosawa films. 
it, you know, mm. like if you're talking like Yojimbo, if you're talking Seven Samurai, if you're talking that kind of stuff, because there's such a level of artistry, there's a craftsmanship involved with making this movie, which is a very difficult thing to do in cinema because you're mixing commerce with art. Like mm-hmm. what we do costs millions of dollars. So like mm-hmm. I can't just pick up my paintbrushes and paint something. Like I have to somehow convince and work with the money people in order to make this thing happen. And I think the only place that you see this level of, and I don't want to say level of detail, I think the only place that this stuff start comes close to this these days is on television programming or Netflix programming because that's where it, That's where a the lot eyeballs of the ch- are. Well, yeah, but that's where also a lot of the challenge is happening because mm. to get people into a theater these days is so difficult to actually convince a, a, a younger generation to put their phones down and go sit with a bunch of strangers when they have a giant television at home and they have Netflix, they have these delivery systems that can give them anything. To convince somebody to go into the theater, it's like, okay, shit, I have to have giant monsters that are going to blow things up. Like it has to be the biggest, dumbest, most retarded thing you've ever seen to put on the screen to get you in there. And to fill a theater with a general audience. That wasn't the way when this movie came out. This is in the 90s. And obviously they're pulling people into the theater with the detective trope, with the murder trope, like murder movies were a big thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're pulling you in for all that stuff. And then this movie had a reputation of being the most evil, darkest thing because of all the shit that we've talked about, because of Gwyneth mm-hmm. Paltrow, you know, getting her head cut off and... Because of uh, we didn't even get into the sequence where th- they find the guy with the strap on that has a fucking blade on it that he oh just, my god that he screws a, a prostitute to death with and you know you, I think the actor who played that by the way was just you could really feel his pain oh I don't know he just really god. I don't know what he did like had to run a mile before he shot that scene because he was so like, I don't know worked up and, yeah yeah I think you can really feel like he's been through some shit. <laughs> And you know what's so f- he got typecast in that role because after mm-hmm. he did this movie, he was in like Alien Resurrection, and he was always like the you made me fuck her with it. You know, he always had that thing that he yeah. does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was perfect, perfect mm-hmm. in the scene for it. If you look at all of these murders on a surface level, and you just go through and you know matter of factly say what happened to these people, this movie is so fucked up. You know. Like, mm-hmm. I remember thinking that when I watched it and thinking, like, how do I find this so fascinating, you know? And it kind of opens up that can of worms of how we get desensitized to things. And I don't know. It's just, it's fascinating to me. Because I was never one either to be super interested in some of those detective TV shows with all the same sort of stuff, right? Yeah, like the CS, CSIs or whatever. Yeah. The hell yeah, I say it's a little too real life for me, which I really hope isn't actually the case. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Um, yeah. I just think it's interesting. It's an interesting conversation to have about why do we find this so fascinating? Is it because it's so out there? Is it because I don't think anybody actually wants to see this stuff happen? Probably it's just because it's something you never actually do see happen, but you're you're curious about what it would look like if it did. What do you guys think? Why do we find well, I think that's, this so interesting? That's basically why you you have a lot of, um, I guess, torture horror movies from the mm. early 2000s. You know, like our hostage movies. The first Saw movie was very much inspired by Seven. Mm-hmm. And it was showing you the torture behind it. Because um, the first one was a detective movie as well. And they're trying to figure out who did this. Um, 
but yeah, it's 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 something different. Like I can I can see a fascination there. I don't know why there was eight of those bloody Saw movies. There, someone must be watching them and intrigued by it all. It's mm-hmm. crazy. It's crazy the deal that those guys got for that. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know what though? When I watched Seven, the difference between Seven and Saw or Hostel. Or any of those other movies that are... Oh, it's Hostile, not Hostage. Hostage is a different movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, th- like, those movies are just... They're just torture porn. They're essentially yeah. there to get you yeah. in the theater. It's, it's like going to see um, Friday the 13th. You know what I mean? It's it's like you're, you're just yeah. going... You're going to be desensitized by what's happening. Most of the time, the characters that are getting murdered, they have to make incredibly stupid or, like, very, like, unrelatable. So that way, when they get killed, the audience doesn't lose their shit. You know what I mean? It'd be different if you saw like a hostile mm. movie, but it was a dude that was running around killing dogs. <laughs> you would never get that yeah. movie made. You would never get that movie made. Um, and I think that with Seven, Seven really sort of tackled a lot of horrific fear shit that those mm. movies do tackle without getting into the porn aspect. And not actually, you never see him kill anybody, first off. So you never see that. That's why it's so scary. Yeah. Because yeah. you, know? you have to imagine it. You never see that. And then uh, on top of all that stuff, this movie, to me, it's more about like the corruption of innocence. It's more about uh, mm-hmm. an older gentleman sort of hitting his middle age and examining his life and looking at everything that's happened in his life and losing touch with the love that he had for his profession and not really, not really being able to find it, losing his way, and deciding that he's going to run from it instead of confront it. And then you're tackling uh, Brad Pitt's character who is running head-on into it, running head-on into this thing that he wants to be a hero, he wants to be this guy that does all this stuff. And even down to like Gwyneth Paltrow's character where she's uh, a very supportive wife. She's playing the wife that's there for her husband, but then she's also trying to tackle like how she's emotionally dealing with the city and dealing with the crime in the city and the potential of bringing a child into this. And by the way, that's something that we completely fucking glazed over. Not only was she decapitated, but she was pregnant with a child that he didn't know about. And and the murderer tells him that she was pregnant with a child, which was the trigger for for him to kill him, which at the end of it all, that's like finding someone, like I said, go back to the, the serial killer killing dogs. It's like, falling in love with a puppy and then holding it in front of the camera and just blasting it in the face. Like it's that same (laughs) level of emotional response that when you watch this movie, the audience just gutterly goes, fuck. And when you look at it, there isn't a lot of gore. There isn't any gore, really. There may be some blood splattered on the wall. Yeah. There's there's none of that. Like even for for the lust victim, they don't show you really a lot. They show you the instrument. Yeah. And that is what is the image that's in your head and being like, oh, that's what makes this whole scene fucked up is because he shows you that photo. For sure. Like you said, it doesn't show you the action or anything. Well, and that comes down to that old, you know, it's like Jaws stuff. You know what I mean? Like that comes down to that. How do do I string you along for an hour and a half? I think this movie's almost two hours. How do I string you along and keep you interested the whole time? And as soon as you start to show someone's ear getting cut off, or as soon as you start to go into those details and you see prosthetics of that, um, the human body can only take that for a certain period of time. 
It's like uh, it's like uh, the old Reservoir Michael Dogs. Reservoir Dogs, yeah. But it's also like the old Michael Bay thing. You know, like when Michael Bay does Transformers movies, and I, I love a lot of the stupid bullshit that he puts in those movies. But when he does those movies, it's like full throttle. Everybody's screaming. Everybody's running. And in the beginning, you're like, wow, this movie's got a lot of action into it. And then you're five minutes into the movie, and you're physically and emotionally exhausted by it. And so you just shut it off. Mm. Yeah. You literally shut off your emotional con- uh, connection to it. And I think that's what Fincher does so beautifully in this movie is that he's never really showing you enough for you to actually be able to go, I just don't, I don't want to look at this anymore. I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. you never get to that point. You're always like, are they going to find him? Like, what is in this room? Like, what is all, well, shine the flashlight over there. What is there? You're intrigued. Just, yeah. The yeah. whole time mm. with this movie. Um, and the music is amazing in this movie. And also, by the way, and I'm, I'm off in tangents here, but um, you can tell how much I love this movie. The opening sequence of this film uh, he uses Nine Inch Nails. So he uses like a weird remix of Closer for the opening sequence. And it's funny how it foreshadowed his relationship with Trent Reznor, who would then go on to be his composer for everything after Social Network. And apparently he tried to convince Trent Reznor for this movie to score it. And Trent was like, I'm not a movie score guy. I don't. He wasn't confident enough in his abilities to do so. So it literally took mm. that many years for them to come full circle and be working together again, which is interesting. That's a, that's a long time. <laughs> yeah. I did want to go back to just mentioning Kevin Spacey again, and I know he's not really popular these days, but for a very long time, he just played the bad guy so well. Like, even in the same week that Seven came out, he was in The Usual Suspects. He was in a lot of things as the bad guy, like even Horrible Bosses or A Bug's Life. <laughs> he's in a lot of things, and he just plays it really well. He's, you know what, I'm going to delicately tread here. Uh, he's, a, sure. he's, a, he's a fucking great actor. He may be a piece of sh- he yep. may be a, mm. he may be a piece of shit person, but he's a great fucking actor and it, like he's amazing in this movie. He was amazing in Usual Suspects. He was amazing in um, at House of Cards. I mean, that was the reason you watched the fucking show was for yeah. him and on that show. Mm. And I mean, granted, everything that's come out and that's uh, the way everything is these days. You know, you write him off, and so you can write him off as being. Whatever you want to write him off for being for what he does personally, but you cannot deny the fact that he has such an amazing presence. I'm literally watching it right now. He's walking into the police station. He has such an amazing wow. presence yeah. on screen that when he comes into this station and you've never, A, you've never seen him, B, they, yep. they didn't bill him on the movie at all. So his name wasn't mm. in the trailers. His name wasn't on the posters. His name didn't show up in the opening credits. His name doesn't come until the end. So they never tell you who this guy is. So most of the time when you watch a movie, you'll see the name of the actor and you're like, oh, okay, so he's going to play the bad guy. They didn't do that for this Mm. movie. Mm. They kept all that fucking hidden from you so that when he walks into the police station like he is right now with his fingerprints torn off and blood all over his shirt, by the way, that's Gwyneth Paltrow's blood all over his shirt, and he lays down on the floor, you're just like, holy shit. And he's got the shaved head. And you're like, what? And this whole movie for the third act becomes so fascinating because it's like, I've never seen this guy before. And you start to see his mannerisms. You start to see how he steeps the tea when he's being questioned by his lawyer. Like you're completely fascinated with this guy because you haven't had him set up before at all in the movie. Something that I'm remembering about his performance too 
that for whatever reason just stuck with me is that his eyes are always the same amount of almost open. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yep. He's remorseless. That's just, yes, and he's just very nonchalant about all of it. I don't know. That's I just wanted to point out that detail because I'm like, it, it adds that chilling factor because it's just like, yeah, I know what I did. He's always at peace with himself. And he's happy with what he's done. You yeah, can tell yeah. that by looking on his face. Yep. For sure. And I'm looking at the sequence right now, and obviously the listeners at home aren't, but uh, they have him in the room. He's question- being questioned by the lawyer. The room is all green. All of the actors are wearing shades of brown, green, and blue, and he is sitting in the space in a red jumpsuit. And he's, uh, like, subconsciously, he is the devil. Like, he is yes. Lucifer yeah. incarnate in this in this room, which is amazing. I was just going to say that I'm a strong believer of separating the art from the artist, and I know that I, a lot of people won't agree with me with that, but I can definitely see how you can say that someone is, is a brilliant actor, even though he's he's done questionable things now, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I very much liked, like to separate that. I remember a couple of years ago, there was a lot of controversy when uh, Casey Affleck won his Oscar mm-hmm. because he was up for uh, domestic violence charges or sexual assault or something. Uh, and a lot of people said that he didn't deserve the Oscar. And I just think I am kind of disagree with that because I think what he did on in the movie was fantastic despite of who you are in reality. And it, it's a very hard thing to talk about, and it's a fine line to walk. What do you think about that, Mike? Uh, it, it's difficult. I think that at the end of the day, when you're talking about doing something terrible to somebody else, uh, and you're, you're, you're relying upon the legal system to take care of it, a lot of the times it doesn't happen that way, especially with money in our country. It doesn't. If you've got money, you can play the game. As, lo- as much as you can. And and I think yeah. that for victims and I think for people that want to hit him where it hurts, it makes sense for them to tackle his work. It makes sense to go after that. It totally does. Oh, I can definitely agree with that. I think that he it should be questionable going work forward from this. You know what I mean? Definitely he got fired from House of Cards and things. But I just don't think it should taint a performance that he did 25 years ago. I kind of agree. And I think that at the end of the day, if you're watching, I'm watching this movie with Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, and and him in it. I don't know who the hell Brad Pitt is. Like, And I know a lot of actors, okay? Actors, As a person. Yeah, actors are weird people. <laughs> yeah. in, like, in, yeah. in like real life, actors are very strange folks. Um, and there's a, there's a handful of actors that I know that I'm actually genuinely friends with as far as human beings are concerned, because it's such a weird world to be in. You're constantly being judged by your physical, your physical state. You're constantly being judged by your personality, the brutalness of like casting calls and all that kind of stuff. And then you decide to take on a role and then you, a lot of these actors are method actors, which is crazy. And they decide to live as these people. And so if you jump, if you're a hardworking dude or girl and you, you do this for a long period of time, who are you then? Like, because you guys are in Australia, right? So let's pretend like uh, you're yep. an actor that, that wants to work here in the U.S., like uh, Mel Gibson, right? And so then you have to adopt the U.S. way of speaking. At what point do you decide to go back to speak like an Australian? And if you've done it enough yeah. times, like who do you become? And so... My point is, is that when I look at these films, I see characters on the screen, I see art on the screen, I see story on the screen. I don't necessarily know or really give a shit 
who the hell Brad Pitt is yep. in real life. I don't. That's not my job. That's not what's being presented to me. And as an audience member, I know enough to sit here and go, this is a story. This isn't real life. So it's not like I'm watching a film where Kevin Spacey's like, here's a step-by-step guide on how to, uh, how to molest people. You know what I mean? It's not like you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're watching that stuff. I'm literally watching him play this part. And the thing that's so fascinating now about the stuff that came out about him, and if you go back and watch this movie with him in it, subconsciously, he's even worse of a bad guy in this film because of all the, the stuff that exists. And you can say, I, I said the same thing about Robert Downey Jr. playing Iron Man. The casting of him as Iron Man was genius because of all the shit that Robert Downey Jr. was going through before that. He was dealing with alcohol problems. He was dealing with all that kind of shit. And Tony Stark was a character that dealt with alcohol problems and had all that. So right off the bat, the audience is bringing a preconceived notion to a character that fits perfectly. So, Mm. you know, if Kevin Spacey were to come back and play in movies, he should just forever be the fucking bad guy. Because, like, he's going to have that stigma attached to everything he does. You know what I mean? I always find it very fascinating to listen to people who are very passionate about a topic. It could be anything, you know. But if you're obviously so passionate about filmmaking and you can just... It's interesting to listen to you because you're just... You know every little thing about this and that and why it does this. And it's just... It's very interesting to listen to, and um, if you would like to hear more of that, I would definitely recommend In Love With The Process podcast. Thank you. Yeah, and you guys can find that on any of the podcast things. It's on Apple Podcasts and all that shit. So just look for In Love With The Process, and follow me. I'm going to do some plugs. At Mike Petchy on um, Instagram, or you can follow the podcast, In Love With The Process, P-O-D on, in, on Instagram. Um, both those places, you can reach out to me, you can talk to me, all that kind of shit. You guys want to get nerdy about movies, uh, that's where I am. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week, and we'll definitely have you on in the future when we, we hit some of these other big ones. I appreciate it. I'll be, I'll be back. It was fun. It was definitely fun. Thanks so much. We have been Daniel and Brenton this week. Thanks for joining us. Feel free to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, check us out on all the socials, and comment on SoundCloud. And until next week, thanks for listening. So you guys watched my movie 12 Cam. I can definitely see an inspiration from like the alien films and just the way that it's, it's tense without showing you anything. Yeah. I mean, um, so basically the premise of the film for those uh, listening, it takes place in the 1970s. It's based on an actual site in uh, Russia, the Kola Peninsula in Russia. There was a team of Russian scientists and drill people that dug the deepest hole known to man actually drilled down into the planet 12 kilometers deep. And there's this mythos that sort of circles around it um, online and everything that apparently the scientists lowered microphones down into the planet and they heard the screams of the damned. And that was the uh, actual real life thing that um, helped me make this film, basically uh, stimulated this film. Um, This movie was also made through a personal experience that I had a couple years ago where I actually uh, ended up cracking my skull. I went ice skating for the first time, fell on the ice, cracked my skull and almost died. I had like internal bleeding, a hematoma, all that kind of stuff. I talk about all that on the podcast. And uh, one of the side effects of that was that I was convinced that my inner voice wasn't my own. So I was going through all this sort of delusional shit as I was recovering from it. 
And I was convinced that my inner monologue was being controlled by somebody else. And so what I wanted to try to do was create a film that was about that, was about losing control of your inner monologue and being manipulated by something that you didn't know was there and the things that you could do and what, we, what you would do. Uh, and I have a whole feature film. I have a whole feature version of this done. And the short that I sent you guys was essentially what we call a proof of concept in the business where we mm. create, we create a short, we show tone, we show vibe, we show all that stuff. Um, because anybody that's going to give me money, they can look at a script and they can look at my notes and go, yeah, but what do you do? It's better if I show them a movie and if I show them something, then they go, ah, oh, fuck. All right. This is what it's going to be. And this is what it's going to happen. Um, so I did some broad strokes in the short. Basically, I wanted to set the tone. Basically, I wanted to set the atmosphere, set the vibe, and give you that that world that the whole story exists in. Uh, if you're watching it expecting like a nice pre wrapped up ending, <laughs> then you're not yeah. gonna get you're not gonna get that from from the short, and definitely not. Um, did you hate it? <laughs> no. They're almost those cutaways that you were describing with with Fincher. There's mm-hmm. a lot of those little things that it focuses on um, and makes you feel anxious. Mm-hmm. I remember you you put the pillow up, looked at me, and said, "Tell me what happens. What happened? What happened? Tell me what happened." <laughs> just like <laughs> just watch the thing, like in order to make you feel that on edge. I think that was really well done in such a, a short amount of time that we watched it. Well, the uh, the sadistic side of me says that you are the person that I make movies for because I love torture. <laughs> I love absolutely torturing people. Um, so basically, without giving any spoilers for the film, the movie is essentially about a son dealing with the death of his father and uh, trying to go deal with that. It's also about uh, manipulation. So everybody that's at that drill site is under the manipulation of the creature which is a big thing. Um, and I'm not telling in the short, and even now, I'm not telling you what the creature is or how, who the creature is and where it comes from uh, because that's why I'm making a feature. You know what I mean? So like, once you, get yeah. in, once you get into the feature film aspect of it, and we're in development right now on it with a major production company out of Hollywood, a major director is producing it. I'm not allowed to say exactly who it is. I'll just say that it's, his movies are in my top five. Um, wow, that must be an interesting feeling. Yeah, it's crazy to be in there in his office and to be in that space. Um, so it's very cool, but these things just take forever. So, like, to actually get a movie yeah. through development and actors attached, it's like three, five years. So, like, I've been cranking away at this for about two years, almost three years since we finished the short. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it's like the movie's definitely, I was heavily influenced by the thing. Big influence there. Big influence by Alien, and then big influence from uh, Close Encounters. So, like those three mm. movies were sort of the the Bible for the tone and vibe. But we pride ourselves, me and all the people that worked on it, we really pride ourselves in creating something that's different. It feels like it belongs in that. Like if it was a high school reunion, it'd be at that high school reunion with those other films. But it's something on its own, which I like. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing: I don't speak Russian. So I, I did a whole movie in a Russian language. I did a movie in a different language, which was a wonderful challenge. Um, it was almost like doing a silent film. And all of the actors that were in it do speak Russian. Only a few of them didn't speak English. So I had multiple translators on set. 
trying to translate the script and also translate to actors like the professor, the uh, Ernst Zorn, uh, who played him. He's an amazing stage actor from Russia. He doesn't speak English. Um, and he was, I'm so happy that he was the professor because he's fucking great. Um, <laughs> But it was definitely it was definitely challenging to be like the young American kid that's telling a story from Russia with an older Russian gentleman. <laughs> with the two of us, got into quite a few verbal uh, creative sessions, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but yeah, the goal for me as a filmmaker at that point, because I'm in the same boat. I don't know Russian. I don't speak Russian. And I know what the script is. So when I, when I edited this film, when I did everything on this film, when I cast this film, I uh, did it in a different language, intentionally trying to take your perspective later. So trying to watch all this stuff as someone that doesn't speak the language. And like I say, I, I treated this like a silent film where I tried to tell the story with actors' performances, with how they move, how they reacted to each other, mm. with all of that stuff. And then the subtitles are just the frosting on a really well-made cake at that point. So if you watch the movie, and a lot of people are like, oh, there's subtitles, rah, you know, and they roll their fucking eyes. And you're just like, just watch it. And I guarantee you, you're, you're going to forget that there's subtitles because it's, it's such a visual-driven narrative, you know? Thank you. Well, that's good. I mean, I had the same sort of notion. Like, the Russian language is kind of brutal, and it's, like, mean, and, you know, being, yeah. being a uh, a dumb American, you're like, oh, wow, that's a scary language. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, <laughs> uh, so it kind of works for, for the bad guys. And I always hated, I hate, hate, hate when I watch movies, and they do it for money purposes, but I hate it when they're like, cut to Russia, and there are people speaking with a, a, a Russian accent. You know what I mean? They're speaking English with a Russian accent. And I'm like, come yeah. on. Come on. Why don't we just mix it up? Why don't we put English-speaking people there and then have people speaking Russian there that has to be translated? That's fascinating. Why not do something like that, you know? So, I don't know, whatever. I think it it's a lot better when you don't have to stare at the bottom of the screen, just keep reading and reading because you, you're afraid you'll miss something. You know, it should be an extra and that's exactly what you're describing is by filming it like a silent film you get the storytelling by looking at the visuals looking at the actors and the shots rather than just watching it because i've seen a lot of silent films where if you take your eyes away from the subtitles you'll miss what's happening where this if i take my eyes away from the visuals i'll miss what's happening and i think there's a difference there and it's, it's really good dialogue for being able to do that Thanks, man. Yeah, I wouldn't want to watch a Tarantino movie subtitled. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> I think Glorious Bastards is, is pretty much all subtitled. Oh, God, because you're like, oh, my God, what's going on? And they're just sitting here over the shoulder coverage. Okay, what's happening? Um, but I will say this. like, So as we talk about this film, if any of the listeners that are listening to the show want to see the movie, it's not online. The only way you can see the film is if you uh, write to me on my Instagram account and send me a note or a message or a DM, as they say, slide me a DM <laughs> with your three favorite horror movies. And if I agree with you, then I will send you a link um, and you'll be able to watch a private I link like of that. the film. Yeah. Yep. I'm trying to think what my favorite horror movie would be. Mm, it might go. be Alien. I like. I really like that very first Alien. I would consider it horror. Yeah, for sure, dude. For sure. I think Alien's fucking amazing. I think... Uh, yeah, Aliens amazing. Obviously, the thing's amazing. The Shining's amazing. Uh, Rosemary's Baby's mm, amazing. Shining. There's a 
boatload of them. Even more recent ones, I liked um, It Follows, I liked. I hear A Quiet Place is very good, but I haven't gotten around to watching it yet. It's great. I mean, they once again, working with that silent film kind of thing and, and, and being so clever yeah. about one of the tricks of filmmaking, which is sound. They just did it so cleverly that when you watch it, it's it's more about the art of filmmaking and less about the dialogue of it. And I think there's so much shit that's mm. out there right now that people are like, here's my script and everybody's fucking talking about shit and exposition and tons of exposition and and uh, story yeah. and structure. And you're just like, I know the fucking stuff. Like every, everything that we watch, you pretty much know what's going to happen. You know? So like A plus B equals C. When you watch any general show or TV show or movie, you're just like, okay, so they're gonna, obviously going to find the fucking bad guy. Like that's obviously going to happen at the end of this movie. So... I'm not necessarily watching movies for that. I'm watching movies for the experience. I'm watching movies for the tone. I'm watching movies for the craftsmanship. I'm mm. watching movies for the emotional response that I have to filmmaking. Not necessarily that I have to a bunch of people sitting in a room reading me a fucking script. And I think that I, I'm going off on like a little bit of an angry tangent there, but I, I feel like, and I think it's not the fault of the viewers because I think the viewers aren't getting a lot of high quality shit. You know what I mean? Like there isn't a lot of filmmakers doing like what Fincher is doing. You know, there isn't a lot of filmmakers doing what that first alien did, you know, like, yeah, there's a notion right now by the people that make movies that the audience doesn't have the patience for what they call a slow burn, which essentially is a very slow buildup. And so you're watching these films that it's like, all right, so we have to tell everybody exactly what the fuck's going on. And we have to cram as much noise and energy and edits as we possibly can to keep people interesting because these kids are just going to go back to their phone if they're not interested. Well, it's interesting that you previously mentioned uh, Denis Villeneuve because we have spoken about him quite a lot uh, because we did Arrival and we spoke about Alejandro Naritu, um, Alfonso Cuaron. These people, uh, they do that slow burn. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if they're obviously not as on everyone's tongue as they deserve to be because they're not as much in pop culture. But if you really want to go down and find those sort of films that are being made today, there's not many of them, like you said, but I think those directors are really contributing to it at the moment. Oh, my God, dude. The uh, the new version of Blade Runner? Oh, my God. Yeah. And that movie's just stunning. And the fact that it didn't do fucking well just blows... Exactly, just that's my point, yeah. Blows my fucking mind that that movie didn't do well. And it was such... It's it's a almost perfect film. I think that the, I think it's better than the first, and I really like the first one, dude. And I think that as of films, more recent films, I think the two perfect films for me are that and the and Mad Max Fury Road. I think both those mm. movies, on a cinematic level, on like a craft level, are impeccable films, like absolutely impeccable movies. And the fact that fucking it blows my mind that the new Blade Runner didn't do well. Like it's yeah. it's just like how how all right cool I guess well then it hurts the industry too because then they they're less inclined to get these big things in the future which is a real shame too well then it becomes like you know it's got to be a comic book franchise it's got to be some sort of shit yeah and then you know you have audiences now that are more concerned with Easter eggs than they are with yeah. with the craft of it. The references yeah. to the first one and such, yeah. Exactly. And I'm not saying that there aren't great examples like the first of the last two Avengers I liked, what they were doing. And the the Russo brothers have a lot of craft that they put in their movies and there's a lot of really good stuff there. But then you look at fucking Ant-Man or Ant-Man 2, like, what the fuck? 
Yeah. I would have really liked to have seen Edgar Wright finish yeah. off Ant-Man and see how different that would have been. It's a whole other story, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> We're definitely getting uh, on a tangent here. So um, we've definitely uh, expanded on how Seven's very good at doing those little things to make you feel a certain way. And, and David Fincher's like, like you said, he's the king at doing that. Um, and I, I love watching it over and over again for repetitive watches. You know, a movie like this, I usually wouldn't want to watch over and over again, but it intrigues me every time. I'm with you, man. I'm with you. Like I said, over a hundred times and it's, it's not like I'm some, some sort of crazy dude that's got pictures of Finchers on my wall and like, you know, I'm going to murder <laughs> this guy, but it's just, it's a great example of cinema. It's a great example of storytelling and I'm not saying that pompously because whenever I hear anybody that works in the business go, cinema, fuck that. It's not a pompous thing. It's, it's, it's just, it's the difference between it's saying I want a cheeseburger, right? And you turn to somebody and you go, I'd love it a cheeseburger. You show up to my house and I cook for you and you're like, I, are you making cheeseburgers? That'd be great. Can you make me a cheeseburger? And I just sit there and I look at you and I'm, I do like a prejudgment and I'm like, okay, well, based upon their age and based upon the clothes that they're wearing and based upon where they come from, they're probably not going to like what I make for a fucking cheeseburger. So I'm just going to buy a McDonald's burger and put it on a plate and serve it to them. As opposed to me actually going through the process of like finding the right ground meat and fucking and dressing it up the correct way and doing it on the grill and processing this thing and having an understanding of sweet and salty and savory and all these different things, understanding how it's emotionally going to lead you on the story path. Uh, and that's the difference between the bullshit that they are packaging as movies these days and cinema. And there are, are fantastic directors that exist right now that are making amazing movies. Watch Green Room. Watch... Uh, Blue Ruin, uh, watch, I just watched it the other day, The Assault on Willow's Peak, I think is what it's called. Fucking amazing movie. Mm -hmm. Um, There's fantastic directors out there doing this stuff, but it's considered indie. And in a world right now where where everything is algorithmed and everything is Netflixed, no one knows about this shit. And so I found these movies because I had a friend of a friend who told me about a movie and it came to me that way. My algorithms would have never told me about them at all. And so I think the danger when you're viewing stuff, if you're listening at home, the danger is just sorting through, doing that mindless drone push through the algorithms on Netflix where it's like suggested for you or shit that's hot right now. It's bullshit. They're essentially just registering what it is that you've watched before. And they're like, this person likes McDonald's hamburgers. Let's give them McDonald's hamburgers. And that's essentially what you're digesting. Talk to other folks. I think it's great that you guys are doing this podcast. One of the reasons why I wanted to be on this podcast is that you're introducing a younger generation to these films. And we're talking about these films. So hopefully, if you hear my enthusiasm about Seven, and and it was my intent to get nerdy with this movie about the cutaways, about the inserts, about all that stuff. So that way you have some sort of emotional attachment to sitting down and watching this movie. That's important. That's so fucking important. And it's the same way with music. It's the same way with anything. You want to have some sort of emotional attachment to it before you sit down and watch the fucking thing. Um, Yeah. The movie that's on the list before Seven, we're recording this in advance, so we haven't we haven't watched it yet. But uh, Seven Samurai by Akira Kurosawa, and oh my God. Um, just introducing people to that of a younger generation, like that's from 1954, I believe it is. Um, I haven't seen it, but I'm just I'm really excited to see it because I know how influential that has been to a lot of things. Whoa, 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 whoa! So you've never seen Seven Samurai? No, I haven't, not yet. 
Okay. All right. Here we go. I'm not going to ruin. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to ruin anything for you, but I'm just going to set you up. Okay. Yep. Kurosawa is the master at blocking. A now, if you guys don't know what blocking is, it's literally organizing where the actors land in the frame and how the camera moves around them. Master at blocking. B watch how he he uses the elements. Watch how he uses fire. Watch how he uses wind. Watch how he uses water. Those are really big things. And then just watch how he uses extras to tell the story. There's so much There's so much detail here. If you watch this movie like that, because a lot of folks are going to look at it and go, it's a black and white movie. And you're multiple generations back where they're like, I hate black and white movies. And it's a black and white movie that have subtitles. Oh, I hate black and white movies with subtitles. No, no, no. Fuck that. It is a movie. Mm-hmm. If you thought 12KM tells you stuff visually, this movie is going to tell you everything you need to know before you even read the fucking subtitles. I love that. It's so exciting. And the reason I got off on a tangent here is that he's a huge influence if you like Star Wars, if you like yeah. anything from the 80s, like anything Spielberg's ever We watched done. Uh, the, the uh, Dollars Trilogy, Good, Mad, and Ugly. I understand that that's very influenced. All of um, it. Magnificent Seven. All of it, dude. Every time they remake that movie, they can't get close to what the original is. And think about it. The shit that they have to do in movies right now whether it's CGI, like putting tons of CGI in, putting fucking tons of exploding buildings, putting in tons of camera moves, tons of fucking edits, just to keep us interested in these dull fucking stories that we're watching. He does all this stuff with a camera on a tripod and maybe on a dolly, maybe on a crane, but a camera on a tripod. Yeah. So watch that knowing that and just sit there and go, why is this scene so fascinating to me? He hasn't even edited yet. There hasn't been a cut in this scene. The actors have literally moved in front of the camera, started on a wide shot, actor walks close to the camera for close-up, and then walks into a two-shot, and then moves out into a wide shot again with no cuts. So watch that movie. We'll um, send you a link to it when, we're, when we finish the podcast. We'll let you see what, you, <laughs> what we think of it. Anyway, it's me getting super nerdy. I don't mean to take over your shit. <laughs> That's fine. 